Section 38 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 2, by Jefferson Davis, Part 4, Chapter 48b. Upon abandoning Atlanta, Hood marched his army in a westerly direction, and formed a junction with the two corps which had been operating at Jonesboro and Lovejoy's under General Hardy. General Sherman, desisting from any further aggressive movement in the field, returned to Atlanta, which had been formally surrendered by the mayor on September 2nd, with the promise, as reported, on the part of the federal commander that non-combatants and private property should be respected. Shortly after his arrival, the commanding general of the federal forces, forgetful of this promise, and on the pretense that the exigencies of the service required that the place should be used exclusively for military purposes, issued an order directing all civilians living in Atlanta, male and female, to leave the city within five days from the date of the order, September 5th. Since Alva's atrocious cruelties to the non-combatant population of the Low Countries in the 16th century, the history of war records no instance of such barbarous cruelty as that which this order designed to perpetrate. It involved the immediate expulsion from their homes, and only means of subsistence, of thousands of unoffending women and children, whose husbands and fathers were either in the army, in northern prisons, or had died in battle. In vain did the mayor and corporate authorities of Atlanta appeal to Sherman to revoke or modify this inhuman order, representing in piteous language the woe, the horror, and the suffering not to be described by words, which its execution would inflict on helpless women and infant children. His only reply was, I give full credit to your statements of the distress that will be occasioned by it, and yet shall not revoke my order because my orders are not designed to meet the humanities of the case. At the time appointed, the women and children were expelled from their houses, and before they were passed within our lines, complaint was generally made that the federal officers and men who were sent to guard them had robbed them of the few articles of value that they had been permitted to take from their homes. The cowardly dishonesty of its executioners was in perfect harmony with the temper and spirit of the order, during the month of September, the Federal Army in and around Atlanta made no movement beyond strengthening its defenses and collecting within it large quantities of military supplies. General Hood, meantime, held his troops in the vicinity of Jonesboro. His reports to the War Department represented the morale of his army as greatly impaired by the recurrence of retreat, decreasing in numbers day by day and the surrounding country devoid of natural strength, or any advantageous position upon which he could retire. With a view to judge better the situation, and then determine after personal inspection the course which should seem best to pursue, I visited General Hood's headquarters at Palmetto. The crisis was grave. It was not to be expected that General Sherman would remain long inactive. The rapidity with which he was collecting recruits and supplies at Atlanta indicated that he contemplated a movement farther south, making Atlanta a secondary base. To rescue Georgia, save the Gulf states, 
and retain possession of the lines of communication upon which we depended for the supplies of our armies in the field. An effort to arrest the further progress of the enemy was necessary, and to this end the railroads in his rear must be effectually torn up. The great railroad bridge over the Tennessee River at Bridgeport destroyed, and the communication between Atlanta, Chattanooga, and Nashville completely cut off. Could this be accomplished, all the fruits of Sherman's successful campaign in Georgia would be blighted, his capture of Atlanta would become a barren victory, and he would probably be compelled to make a retreat toward Tennessee, at every mile of which he might be harassed by our army. Or should he, relying on Atlanta as a base, push forward through Georgia to the Atlantic coast? Our army, having cut his communications north of Atlanta, could fall upon his rear, and with the advantages of a better knowledge of the country, of the surrounding devoted population, of the auxiliary force to be expected under the circumstances, and our superiority in cavalry, it was not unreasonable to hope that retributive justice might overtake the ruthless invader. My first object was to fill up the depleted ranks of the army, to bring the absentees and deserters back to the ranks, and induce the governor and state officials to cooperate heartily and earnestly with the Confederate government in all measures that might be found necessary to give the proposed movement a reasonable prospect of success. The avowed objection of the governor of Georgia to the acts of Congress providing for raising troops by conscription, and his persistent opposition to the authority of the Confederate executive to appoint the generals and staff officers of the volunteer organizations received from the states to form the provisional army of the Confederacy, caused him frequently to obstruct the government officials in the discharge of their duty, to withhold the assistance which he might be justly expected to render, and in the contemplation of his own views of the duties and obligations of the executive and legislative departments of the general government, to lose sight of those important objects, the attainment of which an exalted patriotism might have told him depended on the cooperation of the state and confederate governments. The inordinate exemption from military service as state officials of men between the ages of eighteen and forty-five it was estimated that the number of exempts in November 1864 amounted to 15,000, was an abuse which I endeavored in vain to correct. Were the majority of the men thus exempted, and who remained at home that the army might be fed, really engaged in that important service, the end might be said to justify the means. But for any less exigent demand, patriotism and humane consideration for the brave men at the front, required that the number of these exempts should be reduced to the minimum, if indeed the number of those unfit for military duty was not sufficient to perform this service. After a thorough inspection of the Army of Tennessee at Palmetto, after conference with several prominent Georgians, and notably with that pure patriot and distinguished statesman and soldier General Howell Cobb, whose brain and heart and means and energies were all at the service of his country, I proceeded to Augusta during the first week of October, in order with the Generals Hardy and Cobb and other officers of prominence to meet and confer with General Beauregard, whom I had just assigned to the command of the military division of the West, and to impart to him my views as to the exigencies of the occasion, and how I thought they might be most advantageously met. Before this time, 
General Hood had already crossed the Chattahoochee with his entire force, moving against the enemy's line of communication. General Forrest, with a strong force of cavalry, had been ordered to Tennessee to strike the railroad from Nashville to Chattanooga. During my visit to Hood's army, I learned that the morale of it had been partially restored, many absentees had returned to duty, and the waning hope of the people was beginning to revive. The plan of operations which I had discussed with General Hood while at his headquarters was fully explained to General Beauregard at Augusta, and by him cordially approved. It comprised the occupation of a strong position on the enemy's line of communication by the railroad between Atlanta and Chattanooga, the capture of his depots of supplies and the small garrisons left to guard them. If this, as was probable, should cause Sherman to move to attack as in position, in that case, if the tone of the troops justified it, a battle should be joined. Otherwise, he should retreat toward Gadsden, where supplies would be collected, and should Sherman follow him so far, then there, on the dividing line of the states of Georgia and Alabama, the largest practicable number of militia and home guards of both states would be assembled as an auxiliary force, and there a final stand should be made for a decisive battle. If victorious, as under the circumstances it was hoped we should be, the enemy could not retreat through the wasted country behind him, and must surrender or disperse. If Sherman should not pursue our retiring army to Gadsden, but return to Atlanta to march toward the seacoast, he was to be pursued, and by our superiority in cavalry to be prevented from foraging on the country, which, according to our information as to his supplies on hand at Atlanta, and as to his inadequate means of transportation, would be indispensable for the support of his troops. Should Sherman, contrary to that information, have supplies and transportation sufficient to enable him to march across the country, and he should start toward the seacoast, the militia, the local troops, and others who could be employed should obstruct the roads and fords in his front by felling trees and by burning bridges and other available means, delay his progress until his provisions should be consumed and absolute want should deplete if not disintegrate his army. It was supposed that Augusta, on account of our principal powder manufactory and some important workshops being located there, would be the first objective point of Sherman should he march toward the east. General Hood's calculation was that, taking a route north of Sherman, where he would have smaller streams to cross, he could reach Augusta as soon as Sherman. General Cobb, the local commander in Georgia, in addition to obstructing roads, etc., was, in the last supposed contingency, to assemble at Augusta the invalid soldiers, the militia, and others to defend the place. General George W. Raines, an accomplished soldier and military engineer, was instructed to enlarge and strengthen the defenses of the place, and General G. R. Raines, the author of the system of defense by subterra shells, was, on the coming of the enemy, to apply his invention to the threatened approaches of the town. There was another contemplated contingency, to wit that Sherman, emboldened by his recent successes, would move against Hood with such overweening confidence as might offer to the latter the opportunity to strike in detail. After the full conversation with General Beauregard above noticed, General Hardy was called in and asked to give his opinion on the plan, which I regarded as entitled to great consideration, not only because of his high capacity as a soldier, 
but also because of his long connection with the Army of Tennessee and minute knowledge of the country in which it was proposed to operate. He had previously been made fully aware of the plans and purposes discussed between General Hood and myself, and stated to General Beauregard substantially that, while he could not say the plan would succeed, he was confident it was the best we could adopt, and that if it failed, none other with our means would succeed. General Beauregard left for General Hood's headquarters, as I supposed, to aid in the execution of the proposed plan, to the success of which the larger command with which he was invested it was hoped would contribute. General Hood moved as was expected upon the enemy's line of communication, and his successes at Big Shanty and Ackworth in capturing those stations and thoroughly destroying the railroad between them, and his partial success at Altoona, caused Sherman, leaving one corps to garrison Atlanta, to move out with his main body to restore his communications. Hood further succeeded in destroying the railroad from Resica to Tunnel Hill, capturing the enemy's posts at Tilton, Dalton, and Mill Creek Gap, but not deeming his army in condition to risk a general engagement, withdrew his forces in a southwesterly direction toward Gadsden, which place he reached October 20th, finding there supplies adequate for the wants of his troops. Sherman had turned back toward Atlanta, and Hood, instead of hanging on his rear, not allowing him to repair the damage to the railroad, and otherwise harassing him in his march as much as possible, after conference with General Beauregard, decided to continue his march into Tennessee. His reasons for this change of plan are elaborately and forcibly presented in his book, Advance and Retreat, published since the war, and in which he emphatically contradicts the attempt which has been made to represent that campaign into Tennessee as one projected by me. The correspondence of General Sherman, published in the same work, shows that Hood was not far wrong in the supposition that Sherman would follow the movement made on his line of communication, the only error being that he could thus draw him beyond the limits of Georgia. After my return to Richmond, a telegram from General Beauregard informed me of the change of program. My objection to that movement remained, and though it was too late to regain the space and time which had been lost, I replied promptly on November 30th, 1864, as follows. General Beauregard, care of Colonel W. M. Brown, Augusta, Georgia. Yours of 24th received. It is probable that the enemy, if short of supplies, may move directly for the coast. When that is made manifest, you will be able to concentrate your forces upon the one object, and I hope, if you cannot defeat his attempt, that you may reduce his army to such condition as to be inefficient for further operations. Until Hood reaches the country proper of the enemy, he can scarcely change the plans for Sherman's or Grant's campaigns. They would, I think, regard the occupation of Tennessee and Kentucky as of minor importance. Jefferson Davis To the arguments offered to show that our army could not, after it had reached the Tennessee River, have effectually pursued Sherman in his march through southern Georgia, it is only needful to reply that the physical difficulties set forth would not have existed had our army commenced the pursuit from Gadsden. To make the movement into Tennessee a success, even so far as to recover that country, it was necessary that it should be executed so promptly as to anticipate the concentration of the enemy's forces, 
but unforeseen and unavoidable delays occurred, which gave full time for preparation. After having overcome many vexatious detentions, Hood, on the 20th of November, completed his crossing of the Tennessee River at Gunter's Landing, and moved forward into Tennessee on the route to Nashville, whither Sherman had sent General Thomas for the protection of his depots and communications against an apprehended attack by cavalry under General Forrest. Most unwilling to criticize the conduct of that very gallant and faithful soldier, who, battle-scarred and mutilated, survived the war, and whose recent death our country has so much deplored, I must say, after the event, as I did before it, that I consider this movement into Tennessee ill-advised. Thomas, having been sufficiently reinforced in Tennessee to enable him to hold Hood in check, and Sherman relieved from the necessity of defending himself against an active army, and of protecting a long line of railroad communication with a fortified base in his rear, resolved upon his march to the sea, abandoning Atlanta, after having first utterly destroyed that city by fire. Not a single house was spared, not even a church. Similar acts of vandalism marked the progress of the Federal Army at Rome, Kingston, Ackworth, Marietta, and every town or village along its route, thus carrying out General Sherman's order to enforce a devastation more or less relentless along the line of his march, where he only encountered helpless women and children. The arson of the dwelling-houses of non-combatants and the robbery of their property, extending even to the trinkets worn by women, made the devastation as relentless as savage instincts could suggest. On November 16th, Sherman left his entrenchments around Atlanta, and dividing his army into two bodies, each from twenty-five to thirty thousand strong, the one followed the Georgia Railroad in the direction of Augusta, and the other took the line of the Macon and Western Railroad to Jonesboro. Avoiding Macon and Augusta, they passed through central Georgia, taking Milledgeville on the way, marching in compact column, and advancing with extreme caution, although only opposed by detachments of Wheeler's cavalry and a few hastily formed regiments of raw militia. Partial efforts were made to obstruct and destroy the roads in front and on the flanks of the invading army and patriotic appeals by prominent citizens were made to the people to remove all provisions from its path but no formidable opposition was made except at the railroad bridge over the ockany where wheeler with a portion of his command and a few militia held the enemy in check for two or three days with his small force general wheeler daringly and persistently harassed and when practicable delayed the enemy's advance attacking and defeating exposed detachments deterring his foragers from venturing far from the main body, defending all cities and towns along the railroad lines, and affording protection to depots of supplies, arsenals, and other important government works. The report of his operations from November 14th to December 20th displays a dash, activity, vigilance, and consummate skill which justly entitle him to a prominent place in the role of great cavalry leaders. By his indomitable energy, operating on all sides of Sherman's columns, he was enabled to keep the government and commanders of our troops advised of the enemy's movements, and by preventing foraging parties from leaving the main body, he saved from spoliation all but a narrow tract of country, and from the torch millions worth of property, which would otherwise have been certainly consumed. 
it soon became manifest that savannah was general sherman's objective point that city was occupied by general w j hardy with about eighteen thousand men a considerable portion of which was composed of militia local troops reserves and hastily organized regiments and battalions made up of convalescents from the hospitals and artisans from the government shops on the tenth of december the enemy's columns reached the immediate vicinity of savannah and on the twelfth they occupied a semicircular line extending from the savannah river to the savannah and gulf railroad the defenses of the city were strong the earthworks and other fortifications were flanked by inundated rice swamps extending across the peninsula formed by the savannah and ogeechee rivers and the causeways leading through them were well fortified by works mounting heavy guns with a sufficient force to occupy his long lines of defense general hardy could have sustained a protracted siege the city was amply supplied and its lines of communication were still open although sherman had reached savannah he had not yet opened communication with the federal fleet Fort McAllister, situated on the right bank of the Ogeechee, about six miles from Osbo Sound, was a serious obstacle in his way, as it was a work of considerable strength, mounting twenty-one heavy guns, a deep and wide ditch extending along its front, with every avenue of approach swept by the guns mounted upon its bastions. The fort was held by a garrison of two hundred and fifty men, under the command of experienced officers the work was attacked on the evening of the thirteenth and carried by assault after a short and feeble resistance in consequence of the loss of this fort sherman speedily opened communication with the fleet and became perfectly secure against any future want of supplies this also enabled him to obtain heavy ordnance for use against the city he proceeded immediately to take measures to invest savannah and in a few days had succeeded in doing so on every side of the city except that fronting the river while hardy's troops had not yielded a single position or lost a foot of ground with the exception of fort mcallister when on december twentieth he discovered that sherman had put heavy siege guns in position near enough to bombard the city and that the enemy was threatening union causeway which extends across the large swamps that lie between savannah and charleston and offered the only practicable line of retreat he determined to evacuate the place rather than expose the city and its inhabitants to bombardment he also thought holding it had ceased to be of any special importance and that his troops could do no more valuable service in the field accordingly on the night of december twentieth having destroyed the navy yard the ironclads and other government property and raised the fortifications below the city he withdrew his army and reached hardyville on the evening of the twenty-second without hindrance or molestation on the part of the enemy having heretofore stated my objections to the plan of sending hood's army into tennessee after the fall of atlanta i will now follow it in that campaign relying for the facts on the official report of general hood of the fifteenth of february eighteen sixty five the fidelity and gallantry of that officer and the well-known magnanimity of his character are a sufficient guarantee of the impartiality of his narration he reported the arrival of his army at gadsden on the twentieth of october eighteen sixty four where he was joined by general p g t beauregard commanding the military department he writes that after withdrawing from atlanta 
his hope had been that sherman in following might offer an opportunity to strike him in detail but in this he was disappointed hood reported that the morale of his army though improved was not such as in the opinion of his corps commanders would justify a general engagement while the enemy remained united at gadsden he found a thorough supply of shoes and other stores but after a full and free conference with general beauregard at scumbia he decided to cross the tennessee and move against thomas who with his corps had been detached by sherman and sent into middle tennessee general beauregard had sent orders to general forrest to move his cavalry into tennessee the main body of hood's cavalry had been sent to follow sherman as the orders to forrest were accidentally delayed and hood had not cavalry enough to protect his trains he was compelled to wait for the coming of forrest and to hasten the meeting moved down the river as far as florence where he arrived on the thirty first of october this unfortunate delay gave the enemy time to repair the railroad to chattanooga and accumulate supplies at atlanta for a march thence toward the atlantic coast forrest's cavalry joined on the twenty first of november and the movement began the enemy's forces at that time were concentrated at pulaski and at lawrenceburg hood endeavored to place his army between these forces and nashville but our cavalry having driven off the enemy at lawrenceburg gave notice of our advance and on the twenty third he evacuated pulaski and moved rapidly by the turnpike and railroad to columbia on the evening of the twenty seventh of november our army took position in front of the works at that place during the night the town was evacuated and a strong position was taken on the opposite side of the river about a mile and a half distant on the evening of the twenty eighth general forrest crossed duck river a few miles above columbia and in the morning of the twenty ninth stuart's and cheatham's corps followed the cavalry leaving lieutenant general stephen d lee's corps confronting the enemy at columbia the cavalry and the two infantry corps moved in light marching order the object being by advancing rapidly on roads parallel to the columbia and franklin turnpike at or near spring hill to cut off that portion of the foe at columbia the movement having been discovered after hood's forces had got well on the flank of the enemy he began to retreat along the turnpike toward spring hill about noon of that day the cavalry attacked his trains but found them too strongly guarded to be captured the retreat was rapidly conducted along the turnpike with flankers thrown out to protect the main column near spring hill major general cheatham being in the advance commenced to come in contact with the retreating column about two miles from spring hill he was ordered to attack vigorously and get possession of the turnpike this was so feebly executed that he failed to attain the object and the enemy passed on toward spring hill though the golden opportunity had passed with daylight hood did not abandon the hope of effecting by a night movement the end he sought accordingly lieutenant general stuart was furnished with a guide and ordered to move his corps beyond cheatham's and place it across the road beyond spring hill in the dark and confusion he did not succeed in getting the position he desired about midnight ascertaining that the enemy was moving in disorder with artillery wagons and troops intermixed hood sent instructions to general cheatham to advance a heavy line of skirmishers still further to impede the retreat this was not accomplished the enemy continued to move along the road in hurry and confusion nearly all night 
thus was lost a great opportunity for striking him for which we had labored so long the greatest this campaign had offered and one of the greatest during the war lieutenant general s d lee left in front of the enemy at columbia was instructed to press him the moment he abandoned his position at that point he did not abandon his works until dark showing that his trains obstructed the road for fifteen miles during the day and a great part of the night at daylight hood pursued the enemy so rapidly as to compel him to burn a number of his wagons on the hills about four miles south of franklin he made demonstration as if to give battle but when our forces deployed for the attack he retired to franklin from dispatches captured at spring hill hood learned that schofield was instructed by thomas to hold that position until franklin could be made secure and thus knew that it was important to attack schofield promptly and concluded that if he should escape at franklin he would gain the fortifications about nashville hood reports that the nature of the position was such as to render it inexpedient to attempt any other flank movement and i therefore determined to attack him in front and without delay as this was one of the bloodiest battles of the war and its results materially affected the future before entering on an account of it i paused for some general reflections it is not quite easy to determine what my gallant friend hood meant by the expression the nature of the position it may have referred to the probability that the enemy if he attempted a flank movement would retreat rapidly as he had done from columbia and it is now known that a part of his troops and a large part of his train had already been sent across the harpeth river thomas's dispatch indicated a purpose to hold franklin and its relation to murfreesboro where a garrison was maintained would seem to render this a probable part of a plan to maintain communication with chattanooga franklin had to us as a military question no other value than that the road to nashville led through it whether it would have been possible to turn the position so promptly as to strike the enemy's line of retreat is a question which no doubt general hood considered and decided in the negative otherwise he would surely have preferred to attack the enemy on the march rather than in his entrenchments especially as these were so near to the town that hood was restrained from using his artillery on account of the women and children resident in it the position itself was favorable for defense the harpeth river by a short bend flows on two sides of the town and the works in front had the center so boldly salient their flanks resting on the river as to enclose the town in something like a square two sides being river and two sides entrenchment the exterior line of defense had been recently and hastily constructed the interior line was much stronger behind the town there were two bridges one on the main road leading through it and the other a pontoon bridge a short distance above it hood had served with distinction under lee and jackson and his tactics were of that school if he had by an impetuous attack crushed schofield's army without too great a loss to his own and forrest could have executed his orders to capture the trains when schofield's army was crushed we should never have heard complaint because hood attacked at franklin and these were the hopes with which he made his assault on the thirtieth of november he formed his line of battle at four p m he gave the order to advance his troops moved gallantly forward carried the first line and advanced against the interior works here the engagement was so close and fierce 
the combatants occupied the opposite sides of the entrenchments our men carrying them in some places many being killed entirely inside the enemy's works some of the tennesseans after years of absence saw again their homes and strove with desperation to expel the invader from them the contest continued till near midnight when the enemy abandoned his works and crossed the river leaving his dead and wounded behind him we had won a victory but it was purchased at fearful cost general hood in his letter of december the eleventh eighteen sixty four written near nashville reported his entire loss at about four thousand five hundred and among them was major general claiborne brigadier generals gist john adams strahl and granbury all well known to fame and whose loss we could ill afford to bear around claiborne thickly lay the gallant men who in his desperate assault followed him with the implicit confidence that in another army was given to stonewall jackson and in the one case as in the other a vacancy was created which could never be filled hood reported that the number of dead left on the field by the enemy indicated that his loss was equal to or near our own that those of our men who were captured were inside the enemy's works the next morning at daylight the wounded being cared for and the dead buried hood moved forward toward nashville about eighteen miles distant and forrest with his cavalry closely pursued the enemy on the second of december our army took position in front of nashville about two miles from the city lieutenant general lee's corps in the center resting on the franklin turnpike cheatham's on the right stuart's on the left and the cavalry on each flank hood then commenced to construct detached works to cover the flanks should offensive movements be attempted against our flank and rear the enemy still held murfreesboro with a garrison of about six thousand strongly fortified he also had small forces at chattanooga and knoxville it was supposed that he would soon have to take the offensive to relieve his garrisons at those points or cause them to be evacuated in which latter case hood hoped to capture the forces at murfreesboro and thus open communication with georgia and virginia and he thought if attacked in position that he could defeat thomas gain possession of nashville with its abundant supplies and thus get the control of tennessee the people of the country in the meantime were able and willing to furnish our army with supplies and we had captured rolling stock to put the railroad to pulaski in successful operation hood sent major general forrest with the greater part of his cavalry and a division of infantry against murfreesboro the infantry did not fulfill expectation and it was withdrawn mercer's and palmer's brigades of infantry were sent to replace the division nothing of importance occurred until the morning of the fifteenth and the enemy having been reinforced by about fifteen thousand men from the trans-mississippi attacked simultaneously both flanks of our line on our right he was repulsed with heavy loss but on our left toward evening he earned some of the partially completed redoubts during the night of the fifteenth our line was shortened and strengthened the left being thrown back and dispositions made to meet any renewed attack the corps of major general cheatham was transferred from our right to the left early on the sixteenth of december the enemy made a general attack on our lines accompanied by a heavy fire of artillery all his assaults were repulsed with heavy loss until three thirty p m when a portion of our line to the left of the center suddenly gave way 
up to this time no battle ever progressed more favorably the troops in excellent spirits waving their colors and bidding defiance to the enemy but the position he then gained by being such as to enfilade us caused our entire line to give way in a few moments and our troops to retreat in the direction of franklin most of them in great confusion confidence in the ability to hold the line had caused the artillery horses to be sent to the rear for safety and the abandonment of the position was so unexpected and sudden that it was not possible to bring forward the horses to remove the guns which had been placed in position and fifty-four of them were consequently lost our loss in killed and wounded was small at brentwood about four miles from the field of battle the troops were partially rallied and lieutenant general s d lee took command of the rear guard and encamped for the night on leaving the field hood sent one of his staff officers to inform general forrest of our defeat and to direct him to rejoin the army with as little delay as possible but heavy rains had so swollen the creeks that he was unable to effect the junction with his main force until it reached columbia during the seventeenth the enemy's cavalry pressed boldly on the retreating column the open character of the country being favorable to cavalry operations lieutenant general lee commanding the covering force was severely wounded but not until after he and the corps he commanded had rendered such service as to receive the special commendation of the general commanding the army hood reports that when he left the field before nashville he had hoped to be able to remain in tennessee on the line of duck river but after arriving at columbia he became convinced that the condition of the army made it necessary to recross the tennessee without delay on the twenty first he resumed his march for pulaski leaving major general walthall with five infantry brigades and general forrest with the main body of his cavalry at columbia to cover the movements of the army the retreat continued and on the twenty fifth twenty sixth and twenty seventh the army including the rear guard crossed the tennessee river at bainbridge the enemy had followed the rear guard with all his cavalry and three corps of infantry to pulaski and thence the cavalry continued the pursuit to the tennessee river after crossing the river the army moved by easy marches to tupelo mississippi general hood reported his losses in the tennessee campaign to have been about ten thousand men including prisoners and that when he arrived at tupelo he had eighteen thousand five hundred infantry and artillery and two thousand three hundred six cavalry i again quote from general hood's report quote, here finding so much dissatisfaction throughout the country as in my judgment greatly to impair if not destroy my usefulness and counteract my exertions and with no desire but to serve my country i ask to be relieved with the hope that another might be assigned to the command who might do more than i could hope to accomplish accordingly i was so relieved on the twenty third of january by authority of the president though as general hood states in his book page two seventy three i was averse to his going into tennessee he might well assume that i was not as general beauregard and himself acquainted with the true condition of the army when they decided on the tennessee campaign of the manner in which he conducted it isham g harris the governor of tennessee a man of whose judgment integrity and manhood i had the highest opinion wrote to me on the 25th of December, 1864, quote, I have been with General Hood from the beginning of this campaign, 
and beg to say, disastrous as it has ended, I am not able to see anything that General Hood has done that he should not, or neglected anything that he should have done, and regret to say that if all had performed their parts as well as he, the results would have been very different. End quote. To this I will only add that General Hood was relieved at his reiterated request, made from such credible motives as are expressed in the extract above, taken from his official report, and that it was in no wise due to a want of confidence in him on my part. End of section 38